Um, that was such a sweet introduction, Rev. Um, like Rev said, my name is Rachel, and I live here in Nashville. I am a former teacher, so I used to teach elementary school um, for second, third grade, and I started, when I was teaching, there were aspects about it I loved, there were aspects about it that were not so great, and one of the things that I became super passionate about when I was teaching was understanding trauma. Um, I taught all of my kids were either experiencing or had experienced trauma, and I was seeing it manifest behaviorally, emotionally, mentally in my classroom all the time. And I am a nerd, and I wanted to understand it. And I wanted to understand it from like a brain perspective, and essentially kind of diving into the trauma research led me to go back to school for counseling. Um, and I graduated in 2018, and I've been um, no, that's not right. I graduated in 2019, and I've been in practice since. Um, so I work primarily with adolescents and young adults. Um, I specialize in anxiety, depression, eating disorders. Eating disorders are my passion. Um, you'll see that in the case example that I use today. Um, but I, as I was preparing for this and thinking about this and also thinking about it in terms of I have an hour, um, I was thinking really, like, how do I want to help you because you guys are on the ground with youth with kids you are with them you are connecting with them relationally and so as I was kind of prepping and thinking that's really the angle I wanted to go at was how can I help you understand mental health a little bit and I'm gonna not be super sciencey and geeky I'm gonna tame my my neuroscience bend a little bit but I am gonna talk a little bit about it um, but I, but I want this to be helpful for you and I also want to save time for questions um, so that, again, this can be a time that's really helpful for you. So what I was talking to Ben a little bit earlier, and he said one of the themes kind of for the week here has been on this mind-body connection, and that's come up a little bit. And that makes me really happy because that is a little bit of the angle that I'm going with um, presentation today, talking about and understanding the role of the nervous system in youth mental health. So we often think that mental health is just about the brain, and it is, and but we neglect the fact that mental health is also so much about our bodies, um, that we are embodied beings and creatures with not just a brain, but with a nervous system that influences our behaviors way more than I think we even realize. So learning objectives, this is what I hope you take away from today. I hope you will develop a basic understanding about the role of the nervous system as it relates to youth mental health. Um, I hope you will learn about something called the window of tolerance and how to determine when a student is dysregulated. Is anyone familiar with the term window of tolerance? Yes, okay. Um, so a couple people are, I'm gonna, that's kind of, we're, we're gonna get there. Um, and I hope that you will be able to get it and find it useful. And then I want you to walk away with some simple and practical ways to help students regulate their nervous systems so that they are able to be more present focused and able to connect with themselves, others, and with the Lord. So you guys know this, I know this, our teens are not okay. Um, we are among a adolescent mental health crisis. I, I see it every day. You guys, I'm sure, see it too. Um, prevalence of anxiety and depression have nearly doubled during the pandemic. Um, the CEO of Children's Hospital in Colorado declared that the ER is overrun with kids attempting suicide and suffering from other forms of major mental health illnesses. Um, I, I put this quote on here because I think it's just sobering. Um, I've been in practice for over 20 years in pediatrics and I've never seen anything like the demand for mental health services we've seen in the past 15 months. 
There have been many weeks in 2021 that the number one reason for presenting to our emergency department is a suicide attempt. There has been a 25% increase in the number of adolescent eating disorder patients since March 2020. Over the course of the pandemic, the National Eating Disorder Association Helpline has reported a 40% increase in call volume. Um, there is six to eight week wait lists for most inpatient um, or intensive outpatient programs for eating disorders. Um, it is unlike anything I've ever seen before. So th the statistics are staggering, but I think it's just important to, to see it and to say like, yes, like our teens are not okay. Um, and this pandemic has certainly taken a toll on all of us, I th me, my own mental health, but especially for our younger humans who don't have the life experiences or might not have the tools to cope um, like we can. So I want to dive in a little bit into helping you understand your nervous system. And by helping you understand your nervous system, your kid's nervous system. Um, so we are not just brains on sticks. We are brains that are connected to an autonomic nervous system that has a massive and plays a huge role in our mental health. And I think it's so important to understand and just have a baseline understanding of how our nervous system works so that when you're interacting with kids, you can be more aware of like what's going on in their bodies. Um, so we, you know this, we have an autonomic nervous system that regulates a lot of involuntary processes in our bodies. We don't tell our bodies to breathe, they breathe for us. We don't tell our bodies to digest food, they do that for us. All thanks to our nervous system who really that can intuit what we need and runs a lot of autonomic functions for us on a daily basis. Um, so this, I want you to think about your, your nervous system as it is constantly scanning the environment, it's constantly taking cues from the outside world, and it's altering our body's internal state. And our autonomic nervous system is constantly asking one question, and the question is, is this safe? So when my, I'll give you an example. When I showed up here today, um, I, I've been here before, uh, because I've been to YLT as a participant. Um, oh, I did do a stint in youth ministry in between my, my things. Um, so I've been here before. So I was, that communicated safety to me, right? I am coming to a speaking engagement. If this were a place that I'd never been before, I didn't know where I was going, I may have felt a little bit more uneasy or maybe a little bit more nervous. But coming up and seeing a place that was familiar, brought some comfort and safety to my nervous system. I also knew that I was gonna walk in here and see um, two really important people in my life. And so again, bring safety to my nervous system. Um, if I were speaking at a conference where I knew nobody, um, I would probably be a lot more nervous than I am right now to give this presentation. Um, again, and this is my nervous system taking cues from the outside world and altering my internal state making me feel present, calm, here with you, or not, right? If something in my environment is telling me otherwise, if I were to have walked up today and let's say there was like, this is not a great example, but there was like a black bear, like chilling, like where I parked and my body would have freaked out and my, it would not be as, I would not be as regulated as I am right now had my environment given me different cues before walking in here. So I want you to think about our nervous systems as kind of this inborn surveillance system, like our bodies 
kind of have, I like to think about it from a picture person, is like we have these like tiny little cameras all over us and everywhere we go, those tiny little cameras are scanning the environment for cues of safety or danger. And depending on if I have cues of safety or if I have cues of danger, everything in my body is different. And we're gonna get into that. My nervous system state, so whether my nervous system senses safety or danger in the environment, also then impacts the behaviors that I choose, the thoughts that I have, and the emotions that I feel. Okay, um, we're gonna get, gonna dive a little bit more into that in a second. I have this tendency to like go really in depth on slides when I teach, and then I'm like, oh, but I am doing that on the next one. So I'm trying to be better about, about that. So there's this fancy neuroscience, I'm a neuroscience nerd, and there's this fancy word for what our bodies do um, in terms of their, the scanning for those cues of safety or danger, and this word is neuroception. Okay, so when we think of the word perception, we perceive things, that's like our body sensing cues plus like our cognitive thinking brains attaching meaning to something, making sense of something, right? So that's what, that's what we mean when we say we're perceiving something in our environment. My body's response plus critical thinking equals perception. Neuroception is minus the critical thinking, okay? It's what our bodies are constantly doing Again, constantly scanning the environment to decide whether we feel safe or whether the environment is safe, dangerous, or life-threatening. So I wanted to go into some brain science because I think it's important. Um, and what I, what I find is a really helpful just way of conceptualizing this, I guess, and working with youth is that I, and I tell my clients this all the time, especially my adolescents. I'm like, I want you to think about the fact that you have three brains. And they're like, you're crazy, um, which happens a lot in other things too. But I'm like, just, just track with me, okay? Like trying to help them understand their physiology better. But I'm like, I need you to imagine you have three brains. I know you don't have three brains. You have one brain. But you have three very different parts of your brain that do very different things. So I want you to look at that picture of the brain. We're going to start at the bottom. We have what's called a reptilian brain. Um, it's like our dinosaur brain. It's our ancient brain. It is responsible for basic, basic bodily functions. We have no, we can't tell our reptilian brains to do anything. Like, it just is very automatic. So breathing, regulating our heart rate, um, regulating blood flow, all of those like kind of basic autonomic functions, we can thank our reptilian brain for that. It's the first part of the brain that develops. Over that, we have a second part of the brain that's called the limbic brain. Also, there's like a million names in psychology for the same exact thing. Um, also called your emotional brain or your feeling brain or your limbic system. Take what works and move on. Um, I like to think about it as your emotional brain because that midsection of our brain, our limbic brain, it is the seat of our emotions. It's also the seat of um, it's where our hippocampus is, which is where our memory lies. Um, that part of the brain is what's responsible for this thing called neuroception, okay? So when your, your body is scanning the environment for cues of safety or danger, this is the part of your brain that's doing that, your limbic system, your emotional brain. If my limbic system determines or detects any sort of threat, 
rewind. Okay. I'm going to say that in one second. Okay. So third part of your brain, your third brain, is your neocortex, your rational, your thinking brain. This is the seat of executive functioning, rational thought, critical thinking, um, being able to see nuance in things, right? We can thank our neocortex for that. I like to think about it, so if you can see my hand, um, this little thing, this down here is your brainstem, okay? My thumb is your emotional brain, your limbic system. And then your prefrontal cortex is at the top, okay? So brainstem, limbic system, prefrontal cortex. The brain looks like this, right? Prefrontal cortex goes over the limbic system. Um, it's the most mature part of the brain. What happens if my body detects any sort of threat in the environment, whether the threat is present or whether something triggers me in the present moment and reminds me of a traumatic memory, there's a fire alarm that goes off in your brain, essentially. This limbic light bulb, think about it as a light bulb, lights up and it flips your lid, okay? And what it does is it makes your prefrontal cortex go offline. Essentially what happens is your limbic system, your emotional brain takes over and it becomes really difficult to access the part of your brain that you need to think rationally about what's happening in the situation. This is exactly, I'll have kids tell me all the time, like, I, I don't understand, Rachel. I got so angry and I lashed out and I, I don't understand why I did that. I like couldn't even pause in the moment and be reflective of my actions. It's like my body and my brain just totally took over my system. And I'm like, yeah, you make sense. Like your brain is doing what it was designed to do. If you're in the middle of the woods and being chased by a bear, you don't need rational, logical, linear, critical thinking skills. It's not necessary for survival. So that part of your brain is not active. It's not online, okay? This is why um, it drives me nuts when, when someone will say to like a kid who's crying, like, just calm down. That's not how that works. Like, if this part of my brain isn't functioning, then what I have to do is I have to help a kid calm down, right? I have to say, hey, I'm here with you. Let's take some deep breaths. I'm going to do it with you so that I can calm this part of the brain. Then this can come back online. Then after I'm regulated, then I can start to think more rationally and, and logically about what has happened. Um, does that make sense? Is there any questions? That's a great question. So it's going to depend on the, the, the level of danger that's in your present, right? So if you are in, um, let's say it's, and I use the word danger, danger is synonymous with threat, 
it is synonymous with stress like thinking that things are too hard and we can't cope with it right that feeling of like just feeling so overwhelmed um if it's a smaller stressor then it's probably going to take less time to regulate right um if you're running late to a meeting and you really need to be there on time and you're really mad at yourself because you're late right you can probably get over that pretty quick in terms of being able to regulate your emotions and your nervous system if the threat is much bigger right or um, you're in more danger in that moment then it's going to probably take longer for your nervous system to feel that sense of safety again and for that part of your brain to come back online does that make sense so it's kind of in in, in proportion with the level of danger or stress or overwhelm that you feel Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. So I am I'm, I'm going to talk about it. Um but if I don't answer your question, then come see me after and I'm happy to chat more with you. So this is just kind of, um, I, I'm a visual person, and this is a visual diagram that explains everything that I just explained in like a tiny nutshell, okay? Um, I like to call it the science of safety. Um, you could call it how your nervous system functions. Um, our nervous system, really, it just safety is like the big thing. Um, and so calling it the science of safety helps. Essentially, here's how our nervous systems work. They take cues from the environment and from other people. Our nervous systems initiate a response. If my body senses safety, don't worry about the science terms here, okay? But my parasympathetic nervous system is going to be activated and I can be within my window of tolerance, which I'm gonna talk about in a second. That nervous system state now affects my thoughts, my physical sensations, my feelings, and my behaviors. If my nervous system senses danger, my sympathetic nervous system is going to be activated. My body is going to initiate a survival response, which might look like fight, flight, flee, freeze. And then that's going to impact my thoughts, my physical sensations, my feelings, and my behaviors. Oftentimes we think it's the other way around. Especially in kind of modern Western culture that likes to detach um, the brain from the body. And and put so much emphasis on our thoughts, right? There's like a huge emphasis on thoughts and mental health and or mental, so much more than that, right? Um, and so I think it's important to understand that it works both ways. Our nervous system state influences our thoughts, feelings, and physical sensations. And it also can go in reverse. This stuff isn't linear, like, and it's a loop, right? So then my thoughts and my feelings can also influence my nervous system state. Typically where it starts, though, is my body, what my body senses, what my nervous system senses. That's going to color the flavor of my thoughts and my emotions. So there's a million different kind of like theories or ways of speaking about all of this. Um, 
the polyvagal theory is one of them. That is super sciencey and heady, so I decided to go window of tolerance route instead. Um, these are basically two kind of concepts or theories that essentially explain the exact same thing using different language. So I think window of tolerance is a little bit easier to track with, a little bit easier to understand, and I thought it would be more useful for you guys too. So now that you kind of have the background of like what's going on in the brain, I'm going to talk with you about how it's showing up. What does it look like in your kids, okay? And I'm going to do that using this, uh, this concept of window of tolerance. So each of us, we all have something called a window of tolerance. Inside of our window, we are essentially able to move through life and its challenges with ease, awareness, and flexibility. Um, Dr. Dan Siegel is a brilliant therapist and neuroscientist. He's the one that kind of coined this term and created this theory, um, and it's now widely accepted and used to kind of explain how our bodies and nervous systems respond to trauma and stress. So when you are inside your window of tolerance, and I want you guys to kind of think about this too, like with this, your students, um, like do you see this, do you not see maybe some of these behaviors? Um, so when you are inside of your window of tolerance, you can be aware of self, time, space, and others. You can access feelings of joy, peace, kindness, and gratitude. You're able to access logic and reason while al also considering your emotions. So you can use both parts of your brain. Um, you can feel energized, alert, grounded, and centered. You're able to listen and empathize with others. You can access play, creativity, and laughter. You can reflect and be curious about your thoughts and your feelings without getting swept away by them. That's a big one. Um, if I am getting swept away by them, that's probably indicative that I'm outside of my window of tolerance a little bit. Um, I can cope with minor triggers by using coping strategies for self-regulation. I can feel secure and safe um, in your body and in your relationships and in your life. I'm able to function well and handle the challenges that come my way. I can respond flexibly with both safe and challenging situations, and I can connect with other people and maintain healthy relationships. Um, so this is kind of like when you're inside of your window of tolerance, like you're living your best life, like you're your best self, <laughs> um, a little bit, right? Like functioning the best, um, most optimally. When you think about these things though, like are these things that you're seeing with your youth right now, like with your kids? You don't have to raise a hand, you can just speak. Uh huh. Yes. Yes. I'm gonna. I'm gonna talk about it. Yeah. As we go on. Um. Yeah. All of our windows of tolerance have shrunk because of COVID, right? Like our bodies and our nervous systems were not designed to tolerate an ongoing global pandemic for three years. Like, they just weren't. So. And I'm going to talk a little bit in a second about what exactly shrinks our window of tolerance, um, so you can kind of have some things to look for. And I'm going to go into what, what that looks like. Yeah, so you have this on your handout. Um, this is essentially a diagram of the window of tolerance, and I list a ton of behaviors on the top and a ton of behaviors on the bottom. So we're going we're gonna to talk about them. So 
on this image, the window of tolerance is pretty small, right? Like it's pretty narrow. And I did that on purpose um, so that I had more space to describe what it looks like when you're outside of your window of tolerance. So this window of tolerance, you can go above your window of tolerance or you can go below your window of tolerance, okay? No, you're totally fine. So when I go, we're gonna go up first on your, on your handout. So when I am above my window of tolerance, this looks a lot like anxiety to be a generalist, okay? Um, this is where my fight, flight, or my fawn, when I say fawn, fawn is like the people-pleasing response, can be a trauma response, um, because I don't feel safe in relationships, so I have to make sure you're okay with me at all times and, and reduce chances of conflict, right? Can be a trauma response. So um, I'm just gonna read off what this looks like, and I'm sure you, you probably don't see this with any of your students. Um, <laughs> Um, impulsive, anxious, irritated, restless, controlling or demanding, um, rage, panic, fear, hyper alert, yelling, running away, overwhelmed, anger, racing thoughts, mind reading, aggression, defensiveness, rapid shallow breathing, shaking, perfectionism, overthinking, avoidance, excessive worrying, people pleasing, codependent behaviors, release of stress hormones, um, difficulty concentrating, emotionally reactive, rigid and self-critical. Do you ever see students like that? <laughs> I do. <laughs> and I experience that myself when I'm, right? <laughs> um, yeah, um, it's funny, I'm like, students, but also yourself, because you're also a human. Okay, um, yeah, so like, when I dropped off my dog this morning, um, I, and like, had to watch him go in that room, and knew that he was about to be like, put to sleep, I was totally outside of my window of tolerance. Um, we ebb and flow, we move up and down. This is like all the time, okay? So we can bounce up really quickly and then we can bounce back down, back into our window, we can go back up. Anyway, so think of this as very fluid, right? Um, but of course, I was, I, I don't have children yet. Um, and I, um, he's like my baby and I'm <laughs> scared, okay? so. I, like, I, ha I was excessive worrying. I felt fear. I was like, what if he feels pain? What if they do something wrong? What if they give him the wrong dose of anesthesia? What if he doesn't wake up? Like, right? All of that is indicative of the fact that I felt unsafe. I was worried about him. This is what our nervous systems do when they don't feel safe or when something in the environment or in our world doesn't feel safe or controllable. Um, so we also can go below our window of tolerance, okay? And this is gonna look like the opposite of everything that I just stated, essentially. So this is gonna look, generally speaking, like depression. This is gonna look like low energy, um, lethargic, numb, disconnected, dissociated, withdrawn, hopeless, helpless, depressed, detached, brain fog, checked out, trance-like. I'm not gonna read all of them. Low agency, um, lack of emotion, difficulty expressing emotions, decreasing in eye contact and social behavior. So this is again, you know, to, for the sake of being generalist, like above my window of tolerance is like, la, high energy. And below my window of tolerance is like, I'm checked out of my life. Um, I'm dissociated, not really. I'm here, but I'm not really here. Um, so, I wanna talk about things that shrink our window of tolerance. So addressing kind of your question. Um, 
there's a whole lot of things that shrink our window of tolerance. Um, and I'm just going to go through a couple of them because I can just about guess that these are things that all of you, either you or your students have experienced. Um, so adverse childhood experiences. Are you guys familiar with ACEs? Sound familiar? Okay. Um, that would be something to look up if you aren't familiar with that. Um, there's some, some pretty significant research about how adverse childhood experiences impact neurobiology and development. Um, those shrink our window of tolerance. Um, trauma, and I'm not just talking big T trauma, I'm talking shock trauma, developmental trauma, relational trauma, anything that has happened in the past that's not resolved, that, that someone is carrying with them into the present that, that is being activated or is activated, that's gonna totally shrink our window of, your window of tolerance because again, that limbic brain, that emotional brain is constantly being lit up and activated. Um, living in a modern world <laughs> with paleolithic brains that were not made to handle the chaos, that is this modern world. Um, but like truly, like neurobiologically speaking, like this world is low for our bodies. Um, hustle culture, living in a culture that rewards unbalanced living, chronic stress without recovery or rest, um, the lack of emotional literacy and healthy ways of processing emotions. The amount of kiddos that I work with or teens that I work with where we will just spend a session just looking at the feelings wheel and learning words because so many of my 13, 14, 15 year olds can't go past like happy, sad, mad. Um, and that is shocking. Um, the privileging of thinking and reason over sensing and emotions, experiences of discrimination and marginaliza marginalization, um, cultural norms just to like get over the hard things, right? Like be resilient, numb your emotions essentially what that means, right? Um, sometimes um, that doesn't help <laughs> because we just stuff, stuff, stuff and we don't actually process stuff. Um, individualism, there's like some interesting research on this actually about how like our individualistic culture has really shrunk our window of tolerance because we are created to be in relationship. And when we are not connected in relationship, our window of tolerance is shrink. Um, Working in a high-stress environment, school culture becoming increasingly stressful. Holy moly, the things that my high school kids come and tell me in session that I'm like, you have how many homework assignments? Like, what? This is insane. Um, just high stakes. Um, and then the lack of healthy, secure attachment in relationship. That's a big one. So if I don't feel connected in my environment or to people around me, then um, my window of tolerance is pretty small. Um, Okay, I should have brought my phone up here because I don't know what time it is. Someone give me a time check. Ah, okay. Okay, that's perfect. Okay, great. Um, so helping youth widen their windows. That's really kind of the, the meat of this talk, right? Is like all of our windows of tolerances are shrunk. Um, mine is, my capacity as a therapist. Um, right now in this COVID world is, I, I feel it all the time. Um, my window of tolerance is, is shrunk and I have to be aware of that as a, as a clinician. Um, I think we get to be, all of us that are in helping professions, um, this pandemic has been really hard on us and we're tired. Um, and, and when I have to be aware of that when I'm in the room with a client. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second, but 
just this idea of co-regulation, but why? why? Why does this matter to you and your work? Why did I even spend all this time telling you about window tolerance? Um, so that your kids can be more present focused and connected in their relationships. So that they can access feelings of peace, joy, and gratitude. So that they can know in a more embodied sense and not just head knowledge, um, God's love and presence. Um, this is a big one. When a couple of my, I always love it when I have a high school client who um, is a believer and I get to talk about that in session. Um, and time after time again, I hear, I know it with my head, Rachel. Like, I know it up here, but, like, I don't know it. And I'm like, yeah. That makes sense to me. Based on, like, understanding how the brain works, like, you know it cognitively, but have you, have you had the felt experience of living safely in this world and being safely connected to relationships? Right? That disconnect. Um, if I am outside of my window of tolerance when I'm reading scripture or when I am in small group, I'm not, absor I'm not absorbing information. Right? I'm like living in the past or I'm living in my trauma narrative or I'm, I'm physically present, but I'm not, I'm not really hearing it. So yeah, I know it up here, but like has my body had the experience of knowing the presence of God? Um, so that kids can cope with their triggers and life stressors more effectively, um, so they can reflect and be curious of their thoughts and feelings without getting swept away by them, so that you, the leader, can connect with kids more effectively. Um, like, we have to regulate our bodies and be inside of our window of tolerance when we are with kids. Um, there's a word called co-regulation. Like, when I am in the presence of a regulated nervous system, my nervous system often feels pretty regulated. When I'm in the presence of someone whose nervous system is really dysregulated, I feel, like our bodies feel it, and that's because our bodies, our nervous systems were meant to mimic each other, right? And so I have to be aware of my body and my presence when I'm with a kid, when I'm in session as a therapist. And I think it's true for all of us in helping professions. How am I being with kids? Not just up here, but like, how is my physical presence? How am I being with Am I grounded? Am I regulated? Um, so on the back of your handout, um, I, you're probably like, what do I do now? <laughs> how do I help kids widen their window? Um, how do I help myself widen my window? So there are, I gave you lots of strategies, okay? And there's strategies for downregulation and there's strategies for upregulation. Strategies for downregulation are going to be when your kids are above their window of tolerance, super anxious and panicky, how you can help them get back in their window. Strategies for upregulation, if you notice your kids are super disconnected and dissociated, how are you going to help them get more present and back up into their window of tolerance? Some of these strategies like overlap, um, but there are some differences. So I'm going to go over those, and then we're going to do a case example and then we're going to have questions. Um, so, and, and I also want to preface this by saying, like, your, your job with kids is not to be a therapist. Um, and I want to acknowledge that. And, and so know that these tools that I'm, I'm giving you are, like, I just want you to kind of have, like, a small little toolbox of when you do have a kid that comes to you who's, like, I'm having panic attacks and I'm so anxious. Like, how, what can I do? 
I want you to feel like you have something that you can offer um, in that moment that is in addition to the spiritual resources that you are offering. Um, so going to go through these kind of quickly. Um, push against something heavy like a wall. I often have my kids do this at the beginning of session when they come in really anxious. Um, go stand up by a wall and like push as hard as they can. Um, it activates, that activates your parasympathetic nervous system, so kind of it can bring that sense of calm to your body. It's a super simple way just to, like, start off a moment with the kids. If you notice they're anxious, like, hey, I want you to go put down a wall. The things I say to kids, I'm like, ooh, weird. Um, and they all think this is, like, Cracker Jacks, too. They're like, Rachel, deep breathing is dumb. And I'm like, did you try it? And they're like, okay, yeah, and then we how that works um but yeah and and let me say this too I I also there was a time in my life where I also would have looked at a therapist and been like that's it you're just telling me to breathe like you're serious right like I also doubted a lot of these practices as being helpful for my own mental health partly because I'm stubborn um and <laughs> partly because I also grew up in this very like disembodied culture where it was like all about my brain and my mind and like school and I was got really good at being in my left brain but had no idea how to actually like live in my body um and so I just want to name like if there's some like I don't know if it's tension or kind of like some like oh is this woo woo or like these like mind body practices like is that even what is that even science based like kind of this like I don't know about these things. I just want to normalize, like, that's really normal. Um, I've been there, and um, and our kids are there, too. Like, they are. Um, and I think it's just important to name that sometimes, even with students, to say, like, hey, I know this is weird. Like, or this is going to be uncomfortable. But, like, I want you to do it anyways. <laughs> so I just want to name that. So some skills for downregulation. Push against something heavy. Um, the five, four, three, two, one exercise is one of my favorites. Um, it is a mindfulness practice. If you notice kids are super anxious, um, help them ground into the present moment by helping them name, you could start off a, a, a group using this. Um, name five things they can see, four things they can hear, three things they can touch, two things they can smell, and one thing they can taste. Um, when you are doing this exercise, it's impossible for your brain to be somewhere else. And so it really helps to ground um, us into where our feet are. Um, deep breathing. This is a little nuance that I hope is helpful for you and I hope it's helpful for your students. So um, the timing of our exhales and our inhales matter. I didn't know that until like a year ago, um, but it does. So if you are anxious and you're trying to activate your parasympathetic nervous system to like come down, you actually want to do a shorter inhale and a longer exhale. Um, but it's important to keep in mind um, because the way the the timing of your inhale and your exhale it does matter it it from a nervous system perspective. Um, so if you're working with kids who are super anxious and you want to do a couple of rounds of deep breaths with them, have them shorten their inhale and really focus on long elongating that exhale. Um, I'm not going to read all the rest of these. Um, I will say that. Um, I know there's a lot of 
differing opinions maybe about meditation within um, the church and, and things like that. There is a wonderful app that I recommend to most of my clients called Insight Timer because it's free. And there is a amazing woman, her name is Sarah Blondin, um, who specifically has Christian meditations on there um, that are beautiful. Like, they're so beautiful. They've been so impactful for me just in my own journey. Um, but especially my kids who are Christians, um, I always kind of point, point them in that direction. Um, so that's a good thing to know. Um, squeezing parts of your body really tight and then letting them go. It's also called progressive muscle relaxation. A super easy thing to do with kids. Um, and then cold. It's weird. I don't, I hate cold showers so much. Um, but they actually really help. So anything cold. Um, this is why when a kid is having a panic attack, I s always say, like, the first thing you need to do is get an ice pack. Um, because cold down-regulates the body. So anything, splashing cold water on your face, taking a cold shower, ice pack. Cold is good. Skills for upregulation. This is, again, when you are feeling really low, you need to kind of be brought back up into your window of tolerance. Um, listen to high beat music and dance. It is my favorite thing in life when I have my teenagers who are struggling with depression come in session and I tell them to pick a song and we get up and like dance like literally like no one's watching and they hate it. Um, but then I have them check in and I'm like, tell me what you feel in your body. Oh, I actually feel a lot better. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so like it's actually so good. Um, dancing is so good. Any sort of movement, we wanna create movement in the body whenever um, we are feeling disconnected and um, below our window of tolerance. Um, I added a little caveat here. I think it's just important whenever we're talking about movement with kids, especially with the rise of eating disorders right now, we need to be really mindful of the language that we're using. Um, so if we are telling kids like, we're gonna, let's like do some jumping jacks. Like you guys seem so tired. Like let's do some jumping jacks. Like it needs, it needs to be framed around like we're bringing energy to the body. We're waking up your nervous system. Like nothing needs to be said around like calories or burning anything off. Um, so just to kind of note that with working with teens, that language is really important. Um, so always want to bring it back to like, how is this movement helping my mental health? How is this helping regulate my nervous system? Um, inhaling for longer than you exhale. So op this is the opposite. If we need to create energy in our bodies, we need to inhale for longer and then do a quick exhale. Okay. Um, I'll let you guys read the rest of those, but just to give you um, some practical tips, and they're on the back of your handout. Um, so I want to do a quick case example um, and just have some conversation around what you would do. Um, so I'm going to read this out loud. So this is, this is entirely made up, by the way, um, but very similar to kids that I work with. Um, Casey is a 14-year-old female who comes to youth group regularly. Over the past few weeks, you notice that while she's eating dinner with the group, she appears to be anxious, withdrawn, and you notice that she's cutting her food up into small pieces and moving it around her plate. Every so often, you notice her staring, staring off into space and disconnecting from the conversation. Um, Casey appears to be at a normal weight and based on external appearance, doesn't fit the eating disorder stereotype. She recently shared with the group that her parents are getting a divorce and she's having a hard time paying attention in school because of it. 
Right now, the parenting plan is up in the air, and Casey isn't sure who will become her primary parent. When you talk with Casey one-on-one, she shares with you that she's struggling with feeling guilty about eating certain foods and is thinking about going on a diet to lose weight. So I want to know what you would do. And then I'm going to give you some things that you could do. That'll be helpful. Um, But I want to hear from you guys because I've been talking a lot. What do you do? And I want you to think about what in her environment, what in her life right now is maybe causing her nervous system to feel unsafe. Amazing. Yeah, not amazing, but yes, you know what I mean. <laughs> good, good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she's up and she's down, right? The anxiety and then also just the feeling of feeling really disconnected. Yeah, good. So what do you... Um, so what, what do you do? Um, you offer self-regulation skills. I see your handout. Um, so offer her some of those things. We know that her nervous system is not neurocepting any sort of safety in her environment right now. Um, so she's likely going to be bouncing in and out of her window of tolerance pretty frequently. Um, so giving her some ways of coping with that from like a body level um, are, are going to be huge. Um, talking to her family about getting her established as a therapist and nutritionist who specializes in eating disorders. This is very important. Um, when Rev and I were talking about this talk, there was there's like so many things I'm passionate about. It's like all over here. Eating disorders is a big one. And I was like, how do I like incorporate this? And he's like, I know how. Um, in a case example. So um, if you notice um, conversation, behaviors around food that um, are maybe alarming, um, or just kind of make you think, huh, I wonder if there's something going on there. Um, when you are referring out, um, there's a, those of us that work with adolescents kind of in our training, like we're all trained pretty much to work with like anxiety, depression. I mean, we're trained to work with a lot of different things, but um, I think specific to eating disorders, um, if that's something that you are seeing, um, make sure that the therapist specializes in that. Um, and these are just practical things. Look for someone who states that their health at every size aligned or anti-diet. That's important. Um, and bonus if it's someone who's a certified eating disorder specialist. So I know the statistics on eating disorders are, like, massive right now, which is why I think this is important, um, just for you guys to know um, how to get them get in the hands of the right people. Um, 
because based on numbers, we're, it's, you're going to see it if you haven't already. Um, ask her about how connected she feels in her life and what makes her feel connected to her body and her relationships. Um, monitor diet talk around youth group and social gatherings. Um, shut it down. Be willing to change the conversation. Um, that is super important if you are noticing conversations around burning and earning foods like shut it down it is dieting is the number one uh, so social factor that contributes to eating disorders um, one in every one in every four person that goes on a diet will develop an eating disorder our field is very passionate <laughs> about <laughs> eliminating diet culture um, I am very passionate about that as well so shut it down doesn't doesn't need to be a conversation that's had, steer it somewhere else. Um, around the divorce, think about getting her connected with someone else in the group who maybe has experienced parents going through a divorce. Again, like fostering that connection. Um, and then I, this, this is like so cool to me. So I have really been loving listening to John Mark Comer lately. Um, he wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Um, it like, whoa, it's so good. Um, but I recently listened to a podcast um, of him, and before he prayed, he took deep breaths. Like he was like, before we pray, I'm gonna take. I want you to take three deep breaths with me. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes! Like he understands, because um, I think he does. He does. He has a great understanding of mental health and the nervous system, and and incorporates that I think so well. So. Don't be afraid to do that with kids. They might think you're weird, but okay. They think I'm weird all the time. Um, so help them get back into their window of tolerance before before you pray. Um, and then this was my shameless plug for um, my, I wrote a book, it was published last year. Um, it's a body image workbook. And I put the link on the slide um, because it's specifically designed well, it is specifically designed for like all ages, but my teenagers are loving it right now and giving me really great feedback on it. So if you have kids that are really struggling, um, their relationship with food, their bodies, um, I think my workbook would be really great. So that's my shameless plug to you. Um, but well, obviously only if they need it. Um, but if you're like, I need a resource, how can I help them with this? There's my link. Um, there's my contact information. Like Michael said, I am, like happy to answer questions, have conversation, um, help with connecting with resources. Like I, that's a huge passion of mine. Um, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I am available. So before we end, I want uh, we have a couple minutes for questions, um, right, Rev? Convenient. Gotcha. Uh huh. Mm. Yeah. 
you did you did something right because he's where she needs to be so don't beat yourself up for that um yes i it's awkward and it's uncomfortable um but i think the best way that that think about the behaviors is a cry for help um a lot of <laughs> eating disorders are stubborn and a lot of people don't want help um and and um it is so important to step in and be that voice to say hey what you're doing could have really severe consequences um this is unsafe and i'm concerned and so i think just even that saying I, this is what i'm noticing it's always how i start i start a lot of sentences i'm noticing that um but even just saying i'm noticing these behaviors and these sometimes can be indicators of disordered eating eating disorder um I want you to know that I'm here for you if you want to talk. Um, and then I think if you are, I if it's like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, which is probably what it will be. Um, I think there is, you know, if you continue to see persistent behaviors, then I think you step in and you talk to the parent. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned like crying with the students and trying to get them back into that window and all that. What are ways like in large groups or small group settings mm -hmm. that we can Yeah. How much our students are probably feeling anxious and, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about what other people are thinking about them and that yeah. kind of stuff and how much that's going to be distracting mm -hmm. from our students hearing about God. So what are totally. the ways that, that we can help? Yeah. So a couple of the things that I gave you on your handout, um, but I think from like a whole group, like big group perspective, um, I think the, the easiest one is going to be, hey, guys, before we like sink into the prayer, like we're all going to take three big deep breaths together. Um, to orient us to the space. I think that one's super easy. I think that um, even just like getting them to notice how their body feels. So like if they're like sitting in a circle, like, hey, I just want you to notice like how your ankles feel on the carpet or how, how your legs feel on the carpet or how, you know, any, any way of like bringing attention to the body and saying like, how does this feel? Like how your shoulders feel right now? Just, and they can answer it in their head. They don't have to like share out loud, but just that in and of itself is going to bring them back into that window of tolerance again going to bring them back into that present moment because if they're thinking again like if they're sensing into those body sensations that anxiety is going to go down it might be for a split second right but even if it is for a split second and then you're going into like talking about god and prayer like that's really empowering because they're going to hear you better Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it can. I'm always asking the question of like, what is the family? What can they hold? Um, like, if I go to these parents, like, are they capable of 
taking next steps. Um, the rea hard reality is like some maybe not. Um, and, and so I think that is a case for like who else does this person have in their life that is like a, a parent figure um, that you could potentially go to um, in that situation. But I think I always am going to err on the side of like, hey, this is your parents just need to know. And that's hard. And you don't want I, like I do it all the time when I have to break confidentiality in session because they disclose to me these behaviors and I have to say this falls outside like you're harming yourself and if you're harming yourself I have to bring in your parent and and they're mad in the moment and then they come back from treatment and they say thank you um, and so I think it's doing the hard thing and having an honest hard conversation and trusting that yeah mm-hmm guys i think we need to wrap it up um david i'm sorry can we I'll um stay. I'll stay. yeah thank you i just want to throw one thing in from the youth pastor world on that last question um referral does not mean handoff mm. when we have students in our ministry who get to that level where you know we especially if we have access to that help that's a whole other conversation a lot of us don't have an awesome counseling center <laughs> right down the road. We're like, we got to find this help. But if you do refer or that referral happens, even if you find out of a kid who gets taken into help with, and you didn't even know about it from parents, like that doesn't mean, oh, I don't have to deal with that anymore. Like you can become one of the most important triangulation people in their life to, to unpack that, I assuming you've got relationship and stuff, because they may not want to talk to mom about and dad about it, but they might open up to you and share how it's going. And uh, so you are, you're still there. You're still a part of God's work in their life. You just have a, a very a more appropriate role. And that role is presence, is listening, is just even if all you do is listen how it went, it was hard, it was miserable, I hated the counselor, blah, 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 and you say, yeah, I hear that, it's hard, it's hard, I'm, I'm here. You know, if someone drops something in your lap that you need to talk to their parents about, again, we got to talk to them, but I'm going to do it with you. I'll go with you if you want. I'm not going anywhere. You know, you can't run from me, you know. So that presence piece is huge. It keeps that safety thing going. So I just wanted to, that was a little, little quip that I heard, that, you know, referral is not a handoff. Um, it's simply inviting someone else into the, into that uh, circle of care. So, um, anyway, um, I just want to say also I just added to the to the website a link to her website, which also has a link to her podcast. Um, uh, she's really gifted at saying a lot of what I would say. Like her, when she nerds out on polyvagal theory and stuff, like I started listening to it. And I was like, very helpful, but like I could never do a podcast as clearly as she does, where she just talks it through and stuff. But. But there's just, again, it's a resource. There's lots of good resources out there. She's a good resource. Um, and I threw a link to the Amazon uh, site for her book also on the website. So those are quick access there. And we'll get the, the other, whatever wasn't on the PowerPoint, we'll get it up there as well um, in the future. So I'll close this in prayer. We'll probably start worship a uh, little bit after 4.30. So just kind of stay close. Listen for me to holler. But thank you for being here with us. Uh, let's close this session out with prayer. Father, thank you for a chance to gather. Thank you for... Uh, helping us think. I mean, we're just tiptoeing into uh, some really cool, uh, sorry for the bad pun, but windows of ways we can help these students. Um, hopefully we can tolerate them. Uh, stop talking nonsense and pray. Thank you for Rachel for using her to be uh, a gift to many uh, as she meets with folks and uh, encourages them to, uh, to, to know your presence and to be better able to be present with you. So thank you for uh, your loving presence with us regardless of how uh, uh, 
that we may feel or think. Help us to help students to see God's presence is so steady as well. Thank you again for this chance to uh, be together, learn, take stuff in, keep thinking, give us a little bit of a breather now as we uh, get ready for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.